Bibles to John chapter 5. I think it's page 890 if you're using our text. We've come off a wild and crazy month. We've been connecting with some of our other mission partners. We've had some vision-expanding messages. We've shared a meal together. We celebrated the completion of our building project. And this month, we kind of get back to normal. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we were studying through the Gospel of John. And uh, with the theme of reclaiming life, that's a constant, repeated um, motif throughout this gospel is how do we reclaim life? How do we find what life is all about? How do we find the essence of life, the meaning of life? And John repeats that theme throughout this book. And we find ourselves today in chapter 5. And I want to introduce something this morning, a, a phrase that maybe some of you have never heard before. It's a phrase called cheap grace. This story that we're going to learn today is a story about cheap grace. And in order to first explain what that concept means, we have to talk just a little bit about what God has done for us, the grace that God has showed us. If we had the opportunity to go through the book of Romans, we would discover there in the book of Romans, uh, there's first a negative message. And that negative message is that we cannot be reconciled to God regardless of how sincere our efforts are, no matter how hard we try. We cannot be reconciled to God uh, in and of our own sufficiency or through our own efforts. But then the positive message is this, is that God offers to us his righteousness through Jesus. And we can stop trying to make ourselves acceptable and put our whole confidence in this person of Christ who lived a perfect, righteous life, was the second Adam, then gave his life as a substitute for our sins. And when we stop trying ourselves and put our whole confidence in his person, then we can receive this free gift. This free gift of eternal life. It's an amazing, astonishing grace. I like what Dick Lucas said, a a British pastor. He said this grace, though, this grace is mutilated in the house of its friends and is attacked by enemies. This grace is mutilated in the house of its friends. There is this sense of how we interact and we accept this, we can accept this free, amazing grace of God and then take it with no further obligations are no changes in our affections, are no changes in our loyalties. And so uh, this is sort of a, really, a, it's a, it's a uh, in some ways, a, a, a nationwide, an American phenomenon where there are literally millions of people who have accepted Christ or believed on Christ at a service or at an event. They've asked Him for new life. They've asked Him to save me. And then they live as if they have no 
further need of him. It's, as one person said, it's salvation as fire insurance. I accept Christ, I believe on Christ, but then I sense no obligation or no investment after that. And what many have called this is a cheap grace. It's taking advantage of the grace of God, and it indeed is a perversion. This is a story in John chapter 5 of cheap grace. And if we dive into it, it'll give us a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let me read the story again. Page 890. I'm going to read the whole passage because we need to see the whole passage in totality. And then we're going to go back and look at three specific items, okay? John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word for us today. It's a little bit of a bizarre story, isn't it? This feels pretty bizarre. Let me just set a little bit of the historical record here and the historical scene of this. First of all, um, first of all, we should point out that for many years this story was thought not to be true. It was actually a story used by skeptics to try to disprove the claims of John because. A pool with five colonnades, and what that was would be a, it was a pool area, 
apparently five-sided, that had a, uh, a little roofed canopy, so to speak, where ones could shade either before getting in or coming out of that pool. And it seemed a little odd to have a five-sided pool with five colonnades, and it was a point for skeptics to point out that this was a bizarre situation and uh, unexpected up until about 100 years ago, archaeologists dug right at that place, the northwest part of the old city where the Sheep Gate was, and they found exactly there remains of a pool with the surrounding five colonnades. Archaeology, again, pointed out that there's an historical reliability to this story. I was uh, enjoying a movie last night with my son called Million Dollar Arm. Anybody seen Million Dollar Arm? Really a fascinating movie. One of those great people stories where people actually clapped after it was, it was over. And uh, it's a story about two young Indian men, uh, young men that are brought to the United States to try to earn a, uh, uh, to earn a, a million dollars in order to be drafted by a Major League Baseball team, even though baseball has no prominence in India. Well, it's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a story that's true. And uh, right at the end of the story, uh, where you have, you know, the whole thing is played out in, in, in film, at the very end, they have an actual live footage of these two young men receiving the news that they had been drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates. And a lady behind us said, oh, oh, it was a true story. Yeah, it was true. Sometimes we, again, we look into these Gospels and we don't really think that they're true. This is a true story. Archaeology helps bear it out. Now, one of the other confusing things about this story, I have to just take a, a, take a minute to note this uh, this reality is that you'll notice in your Bibles, verse 4 is missing. And the reason that verse 4 is missing is because uh, the longer we go, we have greater and greater textual understanding. And the, the, the people that do this are amazing. And uh, they're able to uh, trace back to the earliest, most original documents. And the earliest documents of the Gospel of John do not include verse 4. And uh, so what you have here was a situation which is uh, likely a uh, religious superstition where these individuals who needed healed, at some points the water would be stirred. Some thought it was an angel. It could have just been springs that intermittently came into this pool. But it would cause the water to stir. And it was thought that if you could be the first one to get into the pool then perhaps you would be healed. And so that creates the context for this story. These Imagine this scene, lame, invalids, paralyzed. It must have been a very desperate, pathetic scene. Can you imagine what it looked like? Can you imagine what it felt like? Can you imagine what it smelled like? It just wasn't probably a place that, you know, you wanted to go hang out. And they had this, again, sort of ancient superstitious belief that if they could be the first one in, then they, they would be healed. So who is this man? Who is this individual? And it's interesting that in this case, unlike many other gospel stories where the individual seeks out Jesus, here Jesus seeks this man out. And we don't know why he chose this man and not others, but he singled this individual out and he approaches him 
And what we can deduce from the story is that this man had come to a place of absolute helplessness. There's no hope for him. His muscles had long since given away. He had no strength. He had no balance. He simply, there was no way. His one hope was to get into this pool. And when there was this sort of stirring, he could never get there in time. You might, maybe we can somehow appreciate the utter hopelessness, the utter lack of life that this individual had. And our first sort of thing that blows us away is this startling question that Jesus asks him. Do you want to be healed? It seems crazy. He looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? Now, there's all kinds of you know, reasons given sort of psychoanalysis on what he's trying to get at. But just the brute fact is he asks this man, do you want to take this step to be healed? And his answer reveals this answer that he gives reveals he doesn't know who he's dealing with. He does not know who's talking to him. He says, sir, um, yeah, if you could just help me out here a little bit. Next time the water stir, could you get me up and get me down there first? He has no idea who he's talking to. Again, if you'll forgive me another, another sports story, I had to think of a time in middle school when my son was in middle school and I was watching one of his baseball games and uh, the umpire behind the home plate was a very young guy and uh, he was making some controversial calls and some of the parents, I can't remember from which side, uh, you know, would throw out little barbs to him and little like, you know, how could you say that or terrible call or whatever, you know, things that parents say. And he kept reacting to that. He would kept reacting to it. The last thing that umpires should ever do is react to these individual isolated you know, there's like 30 people in the crowd, so you can hear every one of them. And uh, not, like a, not like, a, like a normal baseball game. And, uh, and so things had died down for a while and quieted down for a couple of innings. And I had this other dad that was, I was talking to, and he was, we were watching the game together right behind home plate. So we were pretty close to him. And he makes another somewhat controversial call. And this dad next to me just said something. It was, I can't even recall what he said. It was quite a few years ago. But it challenged it, the call a little bit, but it was not yelled, it was not shouted, it was said quite, uh, you know, but it was still a, a challenge to the call he made. And this poor young guy turned around, took off his mask, pointed at my friend, and threw him out of the game. He said, you're done, sir. You're gone. You go. What the poor 21-year-old umpire didn't know is that this man is in charge of training umpires in central Ohio. And uh, he didn't realize that till after the game. And it's a little bit what we have here. This man does not know the identity of who he's dealing with. He wants Jesus, look at this. He wants Jesus to help him into what he perceives will be his salvation. He wants Jesus to partner with him to get where he wants to go. I would like to suggest to you, isn't that what we do? And it's okay. We all begin somewhere, don't we? In our journey to follow Christ. And that's 
really what we want. We want Jesus to partner with us to get us to what we think is our salvation. And part of the spiritual journey is to begin to realize is the story doesn't end there. It's not just about getting him to partner with us on where we want to go. But it's about following him and where he's going. See, this is part of this cheap grace. Cheap grace is trying to get Christ to partner with me to do what I want. To accomplish what I think is my salvation. To accomplish what I think will bring me self-worth. What will bring me happiness. What will bring me fulfillment. And so we try to contract with him to get him to do that for us. And when we stop there, when that is the scope of our spiritual journey, it's a part of what we mean here when we say cheap grace and how this man illustrates that. But what we have here is a demonstration of supernatural free grace, and it comes with the power of his voice, the power of the voice of Christ. We'll see a little bit more in this in the ensuing weeks. John is setting us up here to appreciate the power of this voice. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And he heals him. Now the story pivots a little bit. And for the first time in the Gospel of John, we know this, of course, from other Gospel studies, but here in John, for the first time, religious heat enters into the scene. There's a problem. There's a controversy. There's a conflict. We would think this guy has been healed for 38 years. He's been an invalid. We would think, great, end of story, movie over, clapping, yay! But it's not over for him or for this ensuing conflict. This event will actually trigger a whole series of events. And isn't it quite stunning when we take a look? And isn't it, isn't it horrifying when religion goes bad? Isn't it horrifying? When religion goes south, it's bad. These guys, these men, these Pharisees, their religious world was so, they had drawn this circle of what they thought spirituality was. And it was a very tight circle. It, was, it made sense within itself. It was logically consistent. It was coherent, but it was very small. It left out on the outside all of these other realities. It's what Jesus meant when he said, you do all these small things and your world is very consistent and tight, but your world is too small. You leave out love and justice and mercy. And that's what happens here. This guy's an invalid for 38 years and they're stuck on him breaking this law. Now, again, we need to discern the nuance here. Did this man break an Old Testament law? Or did he break the tradition of the elders that had grown up above that law? What was the Old Testament law? The Old Testament law was the, was the Sabbath. And what the Sabbath was, was after six days of work, according to the pattern of creation, God commanded the people of God, the Jews, to rest, to cease from their work 
for a day of spiritual refreshment, for a day to focus on God, for a day for, for physical refreshment, for a day to contemplate eternity, for a day to look back and say and reflect on my week's work, to take some satisfaction in what was accomplished. This man did not break any Old Testament law. He wasn't employed in carrying mats. He wasn't engaged in any employment. But what he did break was there were 39 classifications of working on the Sabbath that had been built and around this law that had become the tradition of the elders. Their way of controlling what this looked like and micromanaging what this looked like. And indeed, one of those he broke. For he took up a mat and he carried it from one domain to another. And yes, in that law, he did break. Jesus is not yet charged, though this man is. And it's interesting to look at the invalid's response. And we're getting a little bit of clue to, a clue into this guy. You see his response. Uh, he has no overarching loyalty to Jesus. He did it. He did it. This guy, he told me to do it. He's clueless. He doesn't even know his name. Uh, the, the guy is not likely treacherous, but he's, he's dull. He, he's, he's not really with it. We see that his transformation is really not yet completed at all. And did you pick this up? Did you see the second sign here of sovereign grace? What does Jesus do? Again, this is so exceptional. Except for when Jesus seeks out disciples, it's exceptional for him to be seeking people out. What does he do? He, he f- seeks him out again. And he finds him. And we come now to our second startling thing. We had a startling question. And now we have a startling statement that sort of messes with our paradigms. He says this, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Oh my, wow. What does he mean by this? He finds this guy. There's a brewing controversy. And he says to him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we got to take a little time here and break this down because this is a potentially confusing statement. And I'm going to rely here on D.A. Carson. He helps us to break this down. And he begins by, by asking this question. Or are some tragedies in Scripture, are some tragedies in Scripture, the outcome of a specific sin? Now, just think about that for a moment. Are some tragedies in Scripture the outcome of a specific sin? Well, surely the answer is yes. Yes. Now, we sometimes blame God for circumstances in our lives that are the results of our choices and our decisions. I was recently counseling with someone, and I was quite, um, quite impressed by this person's maturity or his discernment. He was wrestling with some of the things that have happened in his life. And yet, he told me that in the midst of that wrestling, some of the things that God had allowed in his life, in the midst of that wrestling, he said, you know, I know that, I know that some of those things 
happened because of my decisions, my choices. Other things I can't quite explain. But there are some things I know I've experienced, bad things, where I've suffered because they're direct results of my decisions. Now again, here's the nuance. This does not mean that everyone who commits a specific sin will fall ill and die. As a matter of fact, John tells us in other places that some suffering, some suffering is not directly related to an individual sin. But that does not exclude the reality that in some instances, in some instances of suffering, they are the direct result of our sins and the decisions that we make. Now, the implications in this case is that the bad thing that had already happened resulted from some sin in this man's life. And what is Jesus saying to him? He's saying very simply, don't repeat it. Stop sinning or something worse yet may happen to you. This stop sinning has a sense of urgency to it, as it should for us today. And there's something worse here indeed may be the final judgment because it's not really clear that this guy gets it yet. That suffering that's referred to may indeed be the final judgment. So we see here this idea of cheap grace. This man had received this supernatural, sovereign, free gift of God. And yet he's not really yet sure dealing with these he hasn't understood the implications of that, of that free grace. That he's to pursue holiness. He's to pursue righteousness. And Jesus is saying, I want you to reclaim life. I want you to find the meaning and the essence and the purpose of your life. But it will involve decisions on your behalf to stop sinning. Or it may even get worse for you. You see, there's a lie that every one of us believe. And it is at the deepest places of our hearts. I like how Tim Keller says that. It's at the deepest place of our hearts. And every one of us experienced this lie. And the lie goes like this. If I get close to God, if I really get near God, then my life will end. My happiness will end. My dreams will end. And it's a lie. It is a lie. Christ is our life. Christ is the source of our life. And he wants us not simply to uh, use him as fire insurance to somehow secure the life to come. But he wants that grace and power to invade into your world and your life today. The kingdom is here today. And he wants you to experience that. Now, their persecution, Jesus invited this controversy. He could have waited till the Sabbath was done. He could have said, well, this is going to tweak the Pharisees, so I'll wait till Monday. Or I'll wait till Sunday. I'll wait till the following day. But uh, he doesn't do that. As we looked in John chapter 4, he's something of a rebel. He's something of a, a rule breaker when it comes to the wrong rules. And here in verse 17, we've seen a startling question. 
We've seen a startling statement. And now in verse 17, we have a startling claim. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Again, in relation to the Sabbath law, he says, I'm working until now. My father's working and I, I am working. What does this mean? What does it mean by this? Very simply, it's this. Only God could not work on the Sabbath without sinning. Only God, I'm sorry, I included a, a, a two negatives there. Only God could work on the Sabbath without sinning. Only God could work on the Sabbath without sinning. And so what is Christ saying? It's quite clear. Christ is saying that I'm God. And look at their response. Their response shows quite clearly what the implications of he's saying. That I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of the rest. The Sabbath, this idea of a rest is fulfilled in me. It's full. I'm the Lord of it. The idea of the Sabbath points to me. It's fulfilled in me. Remember, I said that the Sabbath pointed to a cessation of work, to stop working. Now, we can't look at it today, but Hebrews chapter 4 makes it quite clear that it was not only physical work that we're called to rest from. Again, I like how Tim Keller phrases it. He says, there's a rest from work underneath our work. There's a rest from another kind of work. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. Look at Matthew eleven twenty. Look at these words of Christ. Calling people to whole life with him. Not just, not just a life looking forward to come in eternity, but a life now, a life here, where you embrace him as Lord of your life, as the leader of your life. He says to me, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Is he referring to physical rest here primarily? No. It's rest from the work underneath the work. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest where? Rest for your souls. You see, when we live by cheap grace, what we do is we go back to this picture in John 5 where we want Jesus to partner with us to get us what we want. We contract him to help us achieve what we want. But you know what happens when we do that? Whatever it is that you are anchoring your life on, whatever it is that you're finding your esteem and worth from, whatever you deem is your practical salvation, it might be accomplishing accomplishments. 
It might be attaining a certain status. It might be accruing a certain level of wealth. It might be having the image of a perfect family. Do you know that when you live in that cheap grace world, all of those things, when you look to them for your salvation, they will become your tyrants. They're not forgiving at all. They will enslave you. They will rule your spirit tirelessly. They will drive you to the ground. And they will not fulfill you. That's the result of cheap grace. What this man had to recognize is salvation was standing right in front of him. He is our salvation. Not these other things that become unforgiving tyrants in our lives. In the movie, Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters, not the main character, but one of the other main characters is an Olympic sprinter. Remember him? Howard Abrams. He articulates the same philosophy. When asked why he runs, he says he doesn't do it because he loves it. He says, I'm more of an addict, he replied. And then later, before running the 100-meter Olympic event, he sighs contentment. Contentment. I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide. And here's the really poignant phrase, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. With 10 Lonely seconds to justify my existence. What is it that you are anchoring your life on to justify your existence? Cheap grace doesn't change us. Cheap grace leaves us still cling to idols from this life, trying to extract life from them when our true, when our genuine life is in Christ alone. And that happens when we respond to His sovereign grace. His sovereign, free, amazing grace. And we accept it with gratitude. And we open up our entire selves to follow Him. And we obey then. We obey Jesus Christ not to earn His love. But we obey Him because He has already loved me. We're not obeying to gain what I perceive to be my true salvation. But we see that he alone is my salvation, my rest. And I anchor my life in him alone. And only there, and only there do we find the kind of rest and cures for our soul that I hope this guy in John 9 or John 5 eventually discovered. And we can discover it. Too. Will you pray with me? And Nick, you guys can work your way up. We're going to, let me pray. We're going to take communion here together and celebrate this new life. Father, Father, minister to our hearts right now. Whatever need is there, whatever hurt, whatever wound is there, 
Lord, some of us have been living under the burden of these tyrants, that these idols that have just been so unforgiving and have refused to give us life. And, and we repent, Father. We tell you we're so sorry that we know every one of us have taken advantage. We've treated that amazing grace with a kind of ingratitude and a kind of cheapness that belies what your son did to win our hearts, to win for us a salvation that is for all eternity that we'll never lose. And so God, wrap us up in grace today and rework our motivations and rework our hearts and rework our souls and orient them to you And as we take the bread and juice this morning, let us celebrate, let us remember, let us come back to the one who substituted his life for us, died for us, that we might might be born again, might be born anew. Help us to continue to worship through our prayers, through our remembrance, through our song, through the tuning of our heart. Thank you for your grace. Change us, Lord. Through Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Chris and Jerry, come on down. You can start releasing people. We're going to celebrate the bread and juice here this morning. Again, um, we remember Christ's body through the bread. We remember his blood through the juice. If uh, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you this morning to not take communion. Feel free to come up and to watch and to participate and see, uh, just the, uh, observe the humble, reverent worship of communion. For those of us that have put our whole confidence in the person of Jesus, this is a remembrance of that day when he came into our lives. Remember the day as you take the bread and juice. Remember the day when his name became real to you. and Remember that he was seeking you out in the same way he sought this man out, in the same way he sought you. Gave your heart the faith, the capacity to believe in him. Thank him humbly. Thank him quietly. Thank him reverently this morning.